We had a goal of serving a thousand people through our Thanksgiving outreach. And by the time we closed all the registration and had everything counted, we realized that we might be a little over a thousand people and we're a little bit worried about how we were gonna make all that work. And then as we had volunteers and chefs in the kitchen all last week preparing everything, turkeys just kept showing up in the kitchen. Uh, we ended up serving 100 people more than what we had planned and what we thought we would have food for. So we're driving to St. Louis and we hit traffic as we approach St. Louis. It's fast and congested, and for some reason, we had to merge at the last minute to the right. So as I'm merging, I'm looking to my right-hand side, and I see a semi-truck about a half van length back. Now, I know we are going to hit this truck, so I just kind of press on the gas and go ahead and merge, but I knew we were going to hit it. No impact. My wife and I looked at each other in amazement because we knew that there was no way we should have made that. But somehow, our van and that truck kind of fused and it went right through us and we continued going. I can't explain it logically, but I also cannot deny the miraculous. So we had been living in Houston for about six years and my dad was sick during that time here in Indianapolis and he was just getting sicker and sicker with each year and we hit a point in 2022 last year where we just weren't sure how long he was going to make it and he got put on the transplant list. And so at that point we decided to just, let's just make the move, let's go back home and be in Indianapolis with my family. Uh, and we didn't have a huge plan. Uh, we were just asking God, hey, please help us figure any of this out, help us find some jobs, help my dad find a liver. And so we just jumped right in and found ourselves back here in Indianapolis in November of last year, and sure enough, not even a month later, on Christmas Eve of all days, my dad got the call that there was a liver available and he went into surgery and he got the liver transplant. And here we are almost a year later and he is doing so good. He's thriving, a huge miracle that he's still with us here today, living life, loving life. So those are members of our staff just sharing <clears throat> how they have experienced uh, something of God's miraculous divine power in their lives. Do you believe in the power of God? When I was early in my ministry, uh, not too long out of seminary, I went to a retreat led by a member of the Duke Divinity School and he talked about Jesus' miracle of feeding the 5,000. It's told in all four gospels. He said he had done a little study on this and found that preachers who preached that story tended to use most the version from the Gospel of John. Now that's the one that has the little boy in it. He comes to the disciples, he offers what he has to eat, uh, a few fish and some small pieces of bread. Jesus blesses it, a miracle occurs, thousands of people eat from that little gift. He said, now, I, I wonder as I listen to the way that story gets treated and the way most pastors talk about it, if the reason that is preferred is because emphasis is placed on the act of the little boy, that perhaps it inspired something in all of the people who were there, this, this generosity that maybe I have something to share. I can contribute. He said, now, that's a great story. There's nothing wrong with it. Uh, but the miracle becomes something very explainable. 
something even provable, something human. He said, now, I'm, I'm not here to debate whether that's a legitimate interpretation of that story. He said, the reason I'm here today is to ask you a question that if you don't believe God can do miracles like that all day long with one hand tied behind his back, why are you here? Never forget that. He said, if you as pastors do not believe in the supernatural power of God, why are you here? Do you believe in the power of God? We're talking in this season of Advent about the names of Jesus taken from the prophecy of Isaiah. Now, when Isaiah wrote these words, Isaiah wasn't thinking about Jesus. Isaiah was speaking to the people of his day and most likely had a different child in mind. In fact, in two weeks, I'm going to do a monologue based on the prophet Isaiah, and I'll talk about who Isaiah was perhaps addressing and saying, unto us a child is born. So if you want to know who the child was, you've got to come back in two weeks from now. But I'll tell you what, uh, last Sunday, Pastor Javon did an outstanding job of setting the context for Isaiah and what was going on in the world of Isaiah. If you didn't hear Pastor Javon's sermon last Sunday, go online and go back and listen to it, particularly that part. It does just a great job of setting the stage for Isaiah and what's around these titles that Isaiah uses because what he's saying is God is sending one who will bring hope to God's people and that that person will befit certain titles, regal titles. Some believe go back to an Egyptian coronation ritual. Pastor Javon started off with the first name, Wonderful Counselor. Next Sunday, Pastor Eric is going to preach on the Everlasting Father, and it will be his final sermon here at St. Luke's as one of our uh, pastors on the team. He's already moved to Atlanta, but he'll be back next week, and then we're going to have a great celebration for Pastor Eric after church, so I hope you'll definitely be back next week. On Christmas Eve, we'll talk about the title, Prince of Peace. Today, I want to talk about the Mighty God, wonderful counselor, the Mighty God. The Hebrew words for mighty God are El Gabor. El is the word for God. Gabor, a Hebrew word meaning um, hero, power, valor. It's a military title. It references a military leader. What uh, Isaiah is saying is that this promised one will be a godlike warrior. Now for people in I Isaiah's time, that would have been comforting. The Assyrian Empire to the north of Israel was on the rise. At its height, the Assyrian Empire would stretch from modern-day Turkey to the north all the way down to Egypt in the south, from the Mediterranean Sea in the west all the way to Persia. The Assyrians were a fearsome people, very violent, very aggressive, and the thought of their attack would have struck fear into the hearts of anybody. So this idea of a mighty warrior is the one whom God is going to send would have been freeing. It would have been comforting. Someone's here to take care of us. Now today, we don't think of God in such a way. This idea that God would come as a, as a sword-wielding protector is not one we're comforted 
by. But understand what Isaiah is saying. He's saying that God fights on behalf of God's people. You don't face your battles by yourself in life. There is a God who lends his power to you. So more than 800 years later, Christians would see in Jesus a fulfillment of all these titles. And when they wrote the stories of his life, they would write them in such a way as to show how he fulfills these, the mighty God. Jesus demonstrates mightiness in his life. Just think about the Christmas story. Let's start there. Luke's gospel tells us the greatest amount about the circumstances in which Jesus was born. It starts with Zechariah and Elizabeth, a priest and his wife who wanted a baby all their lives. Now they're old in age, still without child. God has not answered their prayer. Over the years, they probably spent more on pregnancy test kits than the Walgreens in Bethlehem could have kept up on their shelves. But not one test kit came back positive. And one day, it was just too late. That ship had sailed. And that's when it happened. The angel Gabriel met Zechariah while he was on duty as a priest in the temple and said, your wife is going to have a child. You shall name him John. He's going to prepare the way of the Lord. Now you ask Zechariah and Elizabeth, go ahead, ask them, do you believe in the power of God? They will say, absolutely. Sometimes the power of God is not experienced until we become completely helpless. That's not a comfortable place to be. A lot of people say, I want to have more of the power of God in my life, but we're not so keen on the conditions that go with it. Who wants to be helpless? Nobody likes being out of control, but sometimes that has to come first. Think about Mary in the Christmas story. Her problem was not that she couldn't have a baby. Her problem was that she could. The Holy Spirit put her in a precarious situation. Before she was ever intimate with her fiancé, Joseph, the Holy Spirit came to her and she was with child. We are to read this story and say, how does Jesus ever come about without the power of God? Without God's being present and at work in this situation. You ask Mary, go ahead, ask her, do you believe in the power of God? I believe she'd laugh and say, don't be silly. Sometimes the power of God comes to those who can be trusted with it. So the Christmas story is written in such a way as to say this child is going to be the mighty God. And to tell the story in a way is to make you ask, do I believe that? Do I really believe that? Because if I do, <laughs> if I do, now I've got a bigger question to answer. Am I willing to trust that power more than my own? Prophet Zechariah said, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Am I willing to trust that? 
But the Christmas story also has a troubling feature to it. Because when you turn over to Matthew's gospel, the only other gospel to tell any accounts associated with the birth of Jesus, you read about Herod raging away in his palace in Jerusalem, upset by the news that a king has has been born in, in his empire. Competition. And he understands from his seers that that child's been born within the last two years, most likely in Bethlehem. He sends his soldiers to the village to execute, to murder every male child under the age of two years old. Now, where was the power of God then? Where was the power of God when earthly might flexed its muscle? Where was the power of God when all that could be heard in the night were the cries of mothers whose arms were bereft of holding their sons? Is that how God works? Is God capricious? Does God's power show up sometimes, but not others? Does God's power show up for some people, but not others? Is that how faith works? Or does faith look different? Does faith look just ever so slightly different? Where faith means trusting with all your might in the power of God, even when God doesn't do what you want. Now, that's not a popular notion. That's not a popular picture of faith. I know because one time I was asked to speak to a prayer group. Long, long time ago, I decided to take this phrase I had heard from a well-known church leader who said, what if some things in this world do not change except by prayer? How does that change your prayer life? And I kind of took that sentence and I, I needed it like a batch of dough helping it rise because I believe that. I believe prayer taps into the power of God. But then as if I got it to full rise, I poked my finger in it. I said, but I don't believe that means God does everything we ask for. What if the greater power of God in prayers to change us more than what we're praying for? Oh, this one guy did not like that. He didn't like that. He took me to task when I finished. Came up pointing finger and all. He said, if prayer doesn't move the hand of God, why pray? (laughs) I told him some things I learned in seminary. It didn't help. What I wish I would have asked him. What I wish I would have asked him. Is what do you do with King David? Lying on the floor, facing the dirt, groveling. Praying to God for his son who was deathly ill. He wouldn't eat. He wouldn't drink. His servants were worried about him. And then the child died. And the servant said, what do we do? I mean, if this is how he acted when the child was living, what's he going to do now that he finds out the child is dead? He'll take his life. David hears them whispering. He gets up and he goes to them and he says, is the child dead? Yes, your majesty. 
the child is dead. David goes and bathes and puts on lotions and changes his clothes and goes into the temple and worships, then goes back to his palace and eats a feast. And his servants don't know what to make of this. They go to him and say, well, well, what are you doing? How are you, how are you behaving in such a way? David said, while my child was alive, I believed God could heal him. I thought, who knows, maybe God will be merciful to me and answer my prayer. But now that my son is dead, I can't change it. All I can do is trust. Now that's a picture of faith. How does one do that? How does one believe in the power of God when, when there are wars and atrocities like what's happening in Israel and the Ukraine? How does one believe in the power of God when somebody you love dies? How does one believe in the power of God when sickness strikes you in such a way it robs you of the joys of life that seem to come so easily to other people? Dorothy Sayers, the British essayist, says the incarnation, God becoming flesh, the incarnation means that for whatever reason, God chose to let us fall into suffering and to be subject to sorrows and death. God, nonetheless, had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. Jesus, born in the signs of a mighty God, grows and demonstrates power never before seen, subjects himself to suffering and pain, hanging on the cross, people pointing at him. He saved others. Why can't he come down and save himself? He foregoes using God's power. Why? To demonstrate a greater power? Tim Keller reminds us that the reason Jesus doesn't come in all power to remove and eradicate evil is because the source of all evil is the darkness of the human heart. So if Jesus comes in power to remove evil, who would be left? The eradicating force would not stop until it attacks every heart. The prophecy Isaiah gave long ago was not of a God who would come and eradicate every evil, but a God who would come and redeem. That's the power. Isaiah, who wrote of the godlike warrior, saw this different kind of vision. We heard it in chapter 11 a moment ago. The wolf shall lie with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion will feed together and a little child shall lead them. A Quaker minister and painter, Edward Hicks, some years ago, painted 62 
different images of this story because his church was in a rift. His denomination was splitting apart. He painted these 62 pictures as a way of asking the people in his denomination, if we don't believe that God can do this, then what are we doing here? Do you believe in the power of God? Believing does not make God's power show itself. Our believing doesn't make it happen, especially in the exact ways we want. But maybe if we look to Jesus... We'll understand better about what trusting in God's power is all about. And maybe what we begin to see is that greater than God's power to just give us what we want is God's power to give us what we need. That, that greater than God's power to remove the suffering from our lives is to give us the power to bear suffering. Now that's power. Maybe greater then God's power to eradicate our enemies is to give us the power to love them. If we don't believe that God has the power to do amazing things all day long with one hand tied behind his back, then what are we doing here? And if we have no use for God unless he does, then what are we doing here?